Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The beauty of the national park system is that there are more than 400 units that you can choose to visit, and each has a unique perspective showcasing the United States history, natural beauty, or cultural richness. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. During a recent road trip into the Midwest, I found myself at Fort Larned National Historic Site in Kansas. Fort Larned is the best-preserved Civil War-era fort in the park system and has more than a few stories held in the stone walls of its barracks, officers' quarters, commissary, and other buildings. At the fort, I caught up with Ranger Brian Miller, who gave me the grand tour of the grounds. In a minute, I'll be back to share that visit with you. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. The Everglades Foundation the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Interior Federal Credit Union supports its members with some of the best rates in the country. Check out their new certificate rates and competitive loan rates at interiorfcu.org. Set your money aside for a specific period of time and maximize your earnings with terms up to 60 months and a minimum opening deposit of $500. Bump-up certificates are also available to increase your rate once during the certificate's term. Ready to start saving? Apply at interiorfcu.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So we're at Fort Larned National Historic Site in western Kansas. It's a Civil War era fort that uh, was set up to protect travelers along the Santa Fe Trail. We're here with Ranger Brian Miller who's going to lead us around the fort and, and tell us some of the highlights and life and what it was like uh, back in the 1860s. Right, so here at Fort Larned, uh, one of the, the things we mention a lot is that we're one of the most authentic frontier forts you can find. Uh, so when Fort Larned is actually originally established back in 1859, we have different buildings. Uh, the stonework that we have today comes after the Civil War. Uh, before that, it was uh, adobe structures, uh, much like Fort Union in New Mexico. And of course, adobe doesn't last uh, with time. Uh, so just after the Civil War, when there's a height of conflict with the Plains Indians out here, they start building all of these stone structures. And they're all finished by about 1868. Uh, all the stone is quarried here locally about three miles away or so. And uh, after the fort closed, it closes in 1878, so about 10 years after these are finished. After it closed, it became a private ranch for a little over 80 years. 
And when it was a ranch, they changed these buildings to fit their needs. Uh, the buildings uh, here beside us, uh, the barracks buildings, uh, were actually connected with a big rounded hayloft. There's buildings over here uh, beside us that were connected even over here uh, where there's a big gap between our shop's building and our new commissary. Uh, they even added a metal structure there to connect it all. So I'm wondering, when they built it in 1859, what was the, the prime directive, so to speak? Was it to protect travelers along the uh, Santa Fe Trail, or was it more part of the military's effort to take out the native cultures? Right, so the fort is established specifically in this area because a mail station is attacked in 1859. Uh, so they sent a group out basically to protect the mail, to protect the mail station and the mail routes. And it kind of evolves basically to not only be a show of force, but to protect military interests out here. Uh, if you're an everyday Santa Fe trail traveler, they're not gonna escort you specifically, uh, but if you run into trouble and they're nearby, of course they'll come and help. Yeah. Now one of the unique things about this fort, I mean, looking around the grounds, there's, there's plenty of buildings, but there's no wall. Right, so that's a very common question we get. And it's surprisingly common on frontier forts to not have a wall. Uh, there's a couple reasons. First of all, there's not a lot of wood out here on the prairie. Uh, we do have some trees behind us along the river and stuff. Uh, that actually grew up later when we have, we have some historic pictures and there's actually no trees along the river really. Uh, any trees that were here were cut down for firewood. Uh, and so not enough trees for a wall. But here at Fort Larned specifically, we're actually naturally protected on three sides. Uh, we have the river which goes behind Officers Row here behind us and then it curves and it goes behind the barracks back here and continues on that way. And that's the, the Arkansas River. Yep. Well, locals say Arkansas River. Arkansas. Arkansas, right. But, uh, and then over here we have this big ditch which we call an oxbow. Uh, it's basically an old river course uh, that even before the fort was here closed up and creates kind of a natural ditch. Now you said that uh, you know all the the rock for these buildings was, was quarried locally. I mean, there's a lot of rock work here. Any idea how long it took them to, to build these? So the first stone building they start is the blockhouse, which is the building in the back corner. That one started in 1865, uh, but for the most part, the rest of them start in 1866, and they're all done by 68. So two years time to do. There's 10, 10 stone buildings. All right. Well, let's take a walk around. All right. Okay, so now we're, we're inside the barracks. What, what do we have here? It's, it's quite the assemblage you have. Right, so this is called a squad room. Uh, and at Fort Larned, there were actually four of these rooms because each room is designed to hold a company of soldiers. A uh, company is roughly 100, and at least ideally 100. Usually it's smaller. Uh, this room historically had Company C of the 3rd Infantry, which is on all the hats in the room around here, and they had 68 men. Uh, so because of that, we have sleeping for 68. And these in, in here. In here, right. And these bunks are pretty tight quarters. Uh, there's actually four guys per bunk bed. There's two on the bottom and two on the top. And wow, that is, that is tight. Yeah, they, their beds are actually just stuffed with hay or prairie grass. They have to change it out once a month or so. And then they don't even get pillows. They have those, those jackets, they call them great coats, uh, that they'd use as their pillows. So it's tight quarters in here. Very interesting, yeah. And I noticed on the, the bunks you've got names. Are those the actual names mm -hmm. of the soldiers that were here? Yeah, so those are actual soldiers from Company C who was here. We don't, of course, know exactly what spot they slept in, so we've just kind of assigned them random spots. But sure. uh, when we have school groups and things like that, they're all excited to look at the names in here. And you had one uh, heating source. One stove to heat it all. Uh, we actually use this for events still today. 
Um, and it heats up the room pretty well, surprisingly. Um, I know if I was a soldier, I'd want one of the spots back over here underneath the pipe in the winter time. Well, I'm just wondering, yeah, if there was any um, um, jostling for, uh, you know, could be. I've been here the longest, so I get the best bunk. Right, could be. If you're a sergeant or a corporal, you're a little higher rank, you might be able to, to, to choose your spot a little bit better. But of course, no electricity, no air conditioning in here. Uh, so, be pretty hot here in the summertime. What would they use for light? Did they have, uh, I guess, lanterns? Yeah, they would have had lanterns. There would have been candle holders probably on some of the walls as well. Um, just like these, you know, candle holders. Yeah. Help light it up. And you got some tables in here. Would they, would they eat in here? Or are these just for relaxing, playing cards, writing, whatever? Right. So they're going to eat in the mess hall, which is uh, just across the hall here from us. Um, this is kind of almost a little hangout space. They don't have a lot of free time. Uh, but when they do, they might be in here reading the newspaper, shining up their brass, uh, playing games, playing cards, things like that. Yeah. All right, well, let's go look at the mess. Yep. All right, so we've moved across the barracks into the mess hall. Um, looks pretty spartan, pretty bare bones. Yeah, pretty simple. Um, this is, if they're here at the fort, this is where they're going to eat all their meals. Um, of course, not everybody's necessarily in here at once. There's some who are out assigned to guard duty, there's some on the Santa Fe Trail, maybe some who's sick in the hospital, things like that. Um, but you could have up to 100 guys in here. Um, back behind us, there's a kitchen. Uh, so each company has their own mess hall and their own kitchen. Uh, for cooking, it's kind of hit and miss because you, it's just going to be a fellow soldier who's assigned to do the cooking. Wasn't a specific chef? No, no. So it, it was a, just an extra duty that would be. Uh, assigned to you by the, by one of your company commanders and if you did an extra duty for more than I believe it's 10 days they had to pay you extra so a lot of times they just switch before they hit that 10 days so sometimes you have a decent cook sometimes not so great you know it is kind of uh, surprising to me that I mean the stove is, looks kind of on the small side when you think about you know, January or February on the, the plains of Kansas yeah, so most of the furniture that we'll see in, in the buildings here are reproduction. Um, some are historic from that time period, uh, but if it's out in the public space, most of it's reproduction just to protect it. Uh, of course, after the army left, they took everything with them, so they would have taken the stoves with them and everything. So uh, by the time the ranch came around, of course, they were long gone. So the original stove might have been a little bit bigger than this. Could have been, yeah. But it would have been in the center, most likely. He all right, where to next? Uh, we'll go over to the hospital right next to us. Okay, sounds good. Let's go. Okay, so we moved over to the, the hospital, as you called it, but you said it was also uh, a barracks for the Buffalo Soldiers? Correct. So uh, the end of the building we're in is actually a little bit longer uh, because the Buffalo Soldiers had two squad rooms, or any of the cavalry units based here had two squad rooms. That's because, of course, they're on horseback, they have more supplies. But once the Buffalo Soldiers are chased out, essentially, in 1869, uh, they later turn this into the hospital a couple years later. Uh, one thing that's interesting while we're standing here is you see this bright yellow floor. Uh, this is the only floor that's painted here in the entire fort. Uh, and that's just because when they turned this into the hospital in 1871, uh, if you have a wood floor and you get blood or anything on it, it's going to soak up and stain it. So they decided to paint it. So that way the blood or anything would sit on top and you can clean it right off. Now this isn't the original paint, is it? No, no, it's the same color, of course, they would have had, but uh, not the original floor anymore. Yeah. 
The, the beds are bigger. I mean, were these the Buffalo Soldier beds or were these the hospital beds? These are the hospital beds. Uh, they're bigger, they're more comfortable. Uh, that's because the Army believed, of course, that if you're more comfortable, you're going to heal faster, faster. and, and be, get back to it. So, uh, yeah, th there's two wards here in this hospital. The thought was, of course, if there was an infectious illness, they could separate them. But, of course, they're only separated by a door, and you have the same post-surgeon treating both. So they were still, of course, uh, learning. And technology, of course, wasn't as, as strong as, uh, as well-known as it is today or well-developed as it is today, but, um, but they tried at least. Um, there's even in the ceiling, there's vents to help ventilate the rooms a little bit better. Any idea what, what brought most of the soldiers to the hospital? By far illness. Um, so there is a cholera outbreak uh, during the Ford's time. There is a couple deaths from it, but luckily it's not a huge outbreak here. Um, but most of it's related to drinking bad water. Um, of course, when they didn't test their water, uh, we had wells here at the fort, but they also got their water out of the river. Um, so a lot of it's just drinking bad water, things like that. Um, there are a few gunshot wounds, things like that, but by far it's illness. Okay, all right. Yeah, in the fort's time, there's uh, about 68 soldiers who die. Uh, I believe it's over 70% of them die from illness. Very few of them actually die from, from combat. Wow. Interesting. And any idea how many soldiers passed through this during the active campaign? That's a good question. So we could hold up to 400. Uh, we know at our height, the very highest we ever hit was 1400, briefly. Uh, mm -hmm. Custer comes through the 7th Cavalry, and because we can't sleep that many, most of them stayed in tents on our south side. Mm -hmm. uh, and then during the Civil War years, most of the soldiers are shipped back east, uh, so it's pretty sparse here. Uh, so we could be close to 100 at that time. So it swings a lot, yeah. uh, depending on the year. Yeah. So I'm not sure of the total how many are here. Yeah. Okay. So where to? Uh, we'll check out our shops building. Shops? The shops building, yeah. There's a bakery, there's a, a blacksmith shop, carpentry shop, all next door to us here. All right. Sounds good. So it's really, I mean, forts are small communities. I mean, everything you need, they try and provide for it. And this is the bakery. Exactly. So when we have school groups here, I talk about when we get to this building that the fort is basically a small town. You have 400 soldiers. You also have civilians on top of that. So you need places to, to feed them. You need places to treat them like the hospital, to bury them like the cemetery, uh, to repair items, which we'll see later in this building, and to store things. So we'll see that. Uh, but this is the bakery uh, as part of their daily ration soldiers to get uh, bread and of course it'd be cooked in the oven back here behind us uh, it's fueled by wood and we do still use it today for events uh, especially holiday weekends and to fully heat up this oven actually takes us about three days really uh, so even back then of course it took just as long so they even had the head baker uh, had a bedroom uh, back here in this building beside us right over here uh, so you can keep track of the fire because you got to keep it going all night long to keep it warm enough. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious, Brian. I mean, um, the coals are back there about four foot or so. How would they start the fire? Would they start it up front and then push it down? Right. So what we do is we start it here, and then once we actually really get, get it going, you're going to push it over here uh, and have most of your fire in here, and then your ashes fall down into here, and then we clean that out. So we so started in there. Shovel it out. Into there? Yep. Shovel it across. Yep. 
And you can see on the wall here, you have the big, there's a big hoe and maybe some paddles to pick up the bread. Yeah. Uh, they had tins just like this one here, where they could put several, they put like smaller loaves basically. Mm -hmm. uh, the bread. Now there was a weird army rule too at the time that if, uh, and it's not just at Fort Larned, it's army, army wide, that you couldn't eat fresh bread. Uh, they thought, I guess, that it would create stomach issues if the yeast was still active. So they had, they actually have a room to the side here uh, where they would have the bread sit out for a couple days to dry until they could finally eat it. So they didn't even get fresh bread. Got stale fresh bread. Stale fresh bread. Yep. Is this the original baking table? It is not. Uh, one thing that's interesting back here, uh, so this is the trough that they would have had the dough in. And another weird army rule at the time is they had to roll it out and give it sunlight every day. Uh, but this trough is reconstructed, but this wall behind it is original. Mm -hmm. And you can actually see from all the times they used to keep rolling it in and hit the wall, you can see it right at the right height. Wow. Interesting. Very cool. So from the bakery, where do we go? To the carpentry shop. The carpentry door. shop. All right. I imagine they had a need for a carpenter from time to time. Absolutely. <laughs> Lots of wood around here. Lots of wood. All right, so as, as most uh, carpenters' rooms look, it's uh, pretty crowded. Yeah, exactly. So when we interpret the history here, we want to bring it to life. So we don't want this to be a clean, polished room because historically it wouldn't. You'd have pieces of wood everywhere and tools everywhere, just like we have. Uh, so of course we have a carpenter here at the fort. Uh, the army has lots of wagons that need to be maintained. We have lots of buildings to maintain as well. Um, I tell school groups, again, when we're in here, there's, there's no power tools, there's no outlets in here, everything's done by hand. And then even, even back over here, so this room serves kind of a dual purpose. So it's not only the carpentry shop, but back here is a leather working area. We call it the saddlery shop. Um, so you could do any kind of leather working on their saddles or even some of their wagon pieces that use leather, things like that. So the carpenter was also well versed it, in leather? It would have been two different guys. <laughs> uh, but yeah, high quarters. Yeah, yeah, and uh, again, in the summer times when you have 100 degree heat outside, it probably gets warm in here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're fortunate that um, fortunate for for them is it's pretty shaded in here. The way the sun angles go, it usually yeah. stays pretty pretty cool in here compared to some of the other buildings. Now, I mean, every room we've been in has had a stove, a wood stove. So you need a lot of wood throughout the year, um, warmth and cooking in the, the wintertime mm -hmm. and, and cooking in the summertime or whatnot. Was there a constant detail going out to, to bring back firewood? Absolutely. So sometimes if we detail soldiers, uh, they actually eventually go to using contracts to bring in firewood. But yeah, they would have to go several miles away and find a grove of trees and cut it down and chop it up and bring it back. But absolutely, we would burn through a lot of wood here at the fort. Just several miles? Um, I've heard up to 15, I think, is the farthest that I can think of that I've heard. Yeah. Um, so you could go pretty far out here on the prairie. Yeah, no, and I, I know at Fort Laramie it, it was quite a distance. It might have been 30 or 40 miles. Um, I, don't, don't fact check me on that. Right. <laughs> My memory is recalling something yeah. like that. And we know too, when they build these buildings, all of the rafters and the big wooden pieces, which this building has the original rafters, uh, the wood is actually brought in from Michigan. Uh, shipped in by wagon, of course, uh, because you're not going to find big, tall, strong trees like this out here. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Next on our tour? We're going to go to the blacksmith shop next door. All right, good deal. Let's go.
Okay, so right next to the carpentry shop is the, uh, the blacksmith shop. Exactly. So the blacksmith, of course, works with, with steel here during this time period. Uh, they did have two forges in here. We actually have one of the original ones is still here. Uh, we at Fort Larned actually have a blacksmith still today uh, who comes out and, and is here pretty much every weekend uh, doing demonstrations for visitors and things like that. Does he work in here? Yeah, he actually works in here. He'll make chain links, he'll make hooks, things like that to demonstrate his, his practice for visitors. Uh, but of course, what's nice about this room, we mentioned it in the carpentry shop, is that it's, it's dark in here, which actually works really well for a blacksmith. Um, of course, he's using coal for his forge, and he's heating up the metal so it gets hot and can be worked. And because it's dark in here, he can see the different colors in the metal to be able to tell the heat when it's ready to work. Um, Pretty much all of the items in here uh, could have been made by the blacksmith or were made by our blacksmith. Uh, so if there was a tool he didn't have, he'd just make it himself. Uh, if the fort needed chains or hooks or anything like that, he can make it. Uh, one common question we get is, is did he make horseshoes or ox shoes? Uh, during this time period, no. They were actually commercially made by that point. So they'd be shipped in in big barrels of, of, of horseshoes and nails and all things like that. Uh, so the blacksmith, he's mostly going to work on chains. He's also going to be fixing wagons. So you think a wagon, of course, is made out of wood, but it actually has a steel tire on the outside of the wood to help preserve it. And when the wood gets wet or it gets dry, it shrinks or expands, and it loses that tire. So you actually have to resize the tire. So he can pull, pull the tire off, measure it with the tool he has, and resize the tire. It's one of, going to be his main job. Yeah. Now the blacksmith here too is going to be a civilian, so they're not going to be a soldier, unless maybe they happen to be a blacksmith in their everyday life, but that's not very common. Uh, so our blacksmiths here are going to be civilians who are hired specifically just to, to work for the quartermaster and fix up anything here at the fort. And so he lived here on post and uh, got so, a salary? Or? Yeah, so uh, he did live here. He would have lived actually a little bit off of the, the main fort area. Uh, behind us we have an oxbow area. Uh, with a wide open prairie that would have been what they call the shanty town with some buildings back there where the civilians would have stayed. Okay. Next on our tour? We're going to check out the post school. The post school. Obviously we have soldiers and families. You have kids. A few kids. A few kids. Alright, let's head over there. Okay, so the post school, I don't think many people coming to a Civil War Air Fort expect to find a post-school. Right, so towards, the, actually in the early 1870s is when the Army formally establishes that Fort should have schools at them. Um, so the year we interpret here mostly at Fort Larned is 1868. So the school actually wasn't here yet in 1868. It's founded in, uh, here at Fort Larned in 1871. Uh, and of course it's the school that also serves, we believe, as, as the library uh, and also the post-chapel. When it was a school, there's not a lot of students here. From records, we found that there's maybe a dozen or so. Um, for the most part, of course, the officers, most of them are married and have children. Uh, a lot of their children would be homeschooled. Um, some might come here. Uh, and then for enlisted soldiers, it's pretty rare for them to be married. Uh, if they are, for their wife to be here, she basically has to have a job. Most of them serve either as a laundress in the laundry, hospital matron, or a servant on officer's row. Uh, so if their wife was here and their family was here, uh, they of course need to have their kids educated. So uh, that was done here at the fort. Uh, of course it's one room schoolhouse, so one teacher does it all. Uh, but 
we know from records, not really used too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of kids. Not a lot. Alright. Next on our stop? We're gonna go to the Blockhouse, one of my favorite buildings. Okay. Alright, this is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're spending some time at Fort Larned National Historic Site in Kansas, touring the fort with Ranger Brian Miller, learning a lot about uh, 1860s soldier life and, and what it was like uh, back in those days along the Santa Fe Trail. We'll be back with more in a minute. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. All right, so we've come around to the block house, um, which is empty now, but I, I bet back in the day it was full of uh, ammunition, perhaps? So it, it, in the block house's lifetime, it has several different missions. So first of all, this is the only building that's reconstructed at the fort, uh, but it's actually built with 300 plus original stones. 
Uh, we know that when it was a ranch, they tore it down and they actually used some of the stones to shore up the porches underneath Officer's Row. So we put them back. Uh, but when they first built this building, it's actually built for defense. So there's 100 rifle holes uh, throughout this building on two levels. And if the fort were to be attacked, they could barricade the door shut uh, and take up a spot and defend the fort. Now they were worried that if that happened and they got stuck in here, they'd need access to water. So underneath this building, there's actually a tunnel and it goes down to a well. And there's no exit because if there was an exit, you'd have to defend that too. So it's, it's just one way in and one way out. Uh, so they could access to water, have access to water. Uh, now, a couple years after this is finished, they realize that Plains Indians don't really attack forts. Uh, briefly, I believe it's used as an arsenal for a little while to store explosives, but its main mission after that is actually to become the guard house or the jail. Uh, so they actually plug up the bottom holes here so nothing can be passed in, and it serves as a jail. Uh, the tunnel underneath actually even serves as solitary confinement if you did a bad enough crime. Yeah, you mentioned the a jail. I mean, did they actually use this to keep uh, prisoners from roaming too far? They could. So, say you're allowed out of here. Some, some, depending on your crime, sometimes it would be instances where you go out on the fort, do your daily chores, and then come back here at night. Um, if you were a flight risk, they might put that on you. So, it's actually welded around your foot. So, the blacksmith would have to put a well to hold it together. So, that wouldn't be too fun to take it back off either. Um, but uh, a heavy ball like this, of course, would, would really slow you down. Yeah, you're not going to be very far. Interesting. And so we've got this wooden panel, uh, wooden floor, and there's a trap door there to go under to the tunnel, a solitary confinement, the water. Yep. Now there's also something up top looks like a doorway. Exactly. So there would have been a ladder right here. Uh, we took it out, of course, because we don't have visitors climbing up there. But there's a ladder. There's actually a little lookout tower on the top. It's got a white steeple, it almost looks like a church. A lot of visitors say, hey, was that the chapel? Until they come in here, of course. Um, but it's a little lookout tower, because even out here on the prairie, you only have to go up a couple floors, and you can see a long way away. So yeah. they could use it as that if they need to. All right. All right. Next. Next, we're going to check out the commissary. Commissary. Sounds good. I'm ready for it. <laughs> So we're here in the commissary, Brian. Um, what can you tell us about it? So commissary is food storage. So we saw in the barracks they did all the cooking over there in the kitchens. Uh, but when you have 400 soldiers, and again civilians on top of that, you need a lot of food to supply them. Now here at the fort, you can see when gazing around the room, you can kind of see some of the different foods they would have. Uh, we have the barrels full of uh, different foods. If you look, especially all of, almost all of them start with the word salt or salted. Uh, of course, there's no refrigerators at the time. Uh, we did have an ice house um, for the officers and things, but uh, for the most part, there's no refrigeration, so everything that's shipped in, salted to preserve it. Uh, we do know that they did have uh, fresh beef here. They had a beef corral. Um, so this, in a way, would have been a backup for uh, things like that. Um, there's also canned vegetables in here. Uh, you can see some of the meat drying, things like that. Uh, in this room. Uh, again, they also had gardens here, so hopefully if the year was good, they wouldn't need the canned vegetables, but it's always a backup. And then on top of that, there's of course certain greetings you always need, like flour and sugar and things like that. Uh, we have some records uh, in January 1868. Uh, one of the items that always stands out to me for some reason is brown sugar. Huh. And in January 1868, they had over almost 11,000 pounds of brown sugar just stored here alone. So a lot of supplies in here. What would they do with the brown sugar? I mean, I put mine on oatmeal. That's a good question. I'm not sure. 
I'm definitely not an expert in 1860s cuisine. Now, do you know how much um, they grew on the fort? I mean, you mentioned they had a garden. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that most of this stuff was brought in, although you've got hams and whatnot, so they must have had some livestock. Yeah, there were some, some livestock here. Um, their gardens were behind Officer's Row. We actually have, still today, we have a historic garden back there that we plant and interpret. And some years, we know from the records, grew really well, and other years, they didn't get anything. Uh, we still have the same trouble. Our garden last year really didn't grow much of anything. This year seems to be doing all right so far. Uh, but of course they could grow tomatoes and squash and, and beans and corn, things like that. But they must have got regular shipments of uh, canned goods and whatnot from... Yes. Yeah. From Atkinson, Kansas? Or? So our supplies come based out of Fort Riley, uh, was where all of our supplies would be shipped in from. So near Manhattan, Kansas. Gotcha. All right, Ryan, we're, we're here. We got some firepower. Um, what can you tell us about this room and these uh, weapons? Right, so we're in the arsenal. Of course, this is storage for anything explosive, so your bullets, your gunpowder, uh, your cannonball rounds, things like that could be stored in here. Uh, the cannon that we're here at is called a mountain howitzer. It's a 12-pound howitzer, meaning it shoots a, a solid 12-pound cannonball. And we know from Fort Records they had four of them. Uh, so we do actually still have four here at Fort Larned today. We have the two here and then a couple outside. Uh, and we actually still fire these today. Um, howitzers were perfect for the, for the prairie uh, because they're a lot smaller than an everyday cannon that you see. They're a lot lighter. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can move them easier through the dirt paths back here. So you have, you have the, the cannon carriage here and it's attached to a, a cart there we call a limber. Uh, the limber holds uh, basically your rounds. It holds your cannonballs in those ammunition chests there. And when you're ready to fire it, you actually separate them, of course, because you don't want your explosives next to your cannon. Uh, but we, again, still fire these today uh, when we have events and things like that. Uh, we have a crew that's trained up, and of course we fire blanks today, but uh, we still shoot out a half a pound of black powder out of one of these. And this would be hauled by some horses, I imagine? Two horses, yep, one on each side there. Um, is this is this small enough to get through that door? Looks kind of wide. It is not. So these two actually to get in here, from what I've heard, they actually had to take them apart uh, and bring them in. Uh, howitzers, when they're first uh, used, they're actually called pack howitzers. So instead of being on a carriage, uh, they to transport it, they would actually take it apart and pack it into on a horse or a mule uh, in pieces. Uh, and then later on, they go to these uh, carriages, prairie carriages, they call them, to make it easier. Very interesting. But so you don't fire these, you got two outside that you fire. Right. These, these can be fired, but right. we don't want to take them out. Don't blame you. Don't blame you. They're, they're pretty heavy. And when do you have the um, firing? So we do summer holidays is our main one. So we do Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Labor Day are our main events. Um, sometimes, occasionally, we'll have smaller events where we do it. Uh, we also, not only we do cannon firing, but we also fire some of our rifles that they have here historically as well. Crazy question. Anybody ever asked to do a wedding ceremony here with the 12-pounder uh, uh, salute? Not that I heard of. That would be pretty interesting. We've done 21-gun salutes with our rifles, uh, but with the howitzer, that might take a while, especially yeah. with park service rules. Yeah. All right. We must be getting close to the officer's quarters, or is there something before One that? One more building. We're going to see the quartermaster building. All right. Let's go there. So we're here in the quartermaster warehouse. Uh, this is storage essentially for anything that's provided by the army that isn't food and isn't explosive, because we just saw those. 
Uh, so that could be uniform pieces, uh, pots and pans, uh, tents, ropes, nails, there's even coffins in this building. Uh, but everything back here, because it's paid for by the army, has to be accounted for. So if you're an everyday soldier, you're not allowed in this part of the warehouse. You actually have to go to a different room, we call the issue room, uh, where they would issue your items. Because of course, we gotta keep track of everything. All right, this is the... Uh... We call this the issue room. So we were just back in the warehouse part, which is right behind us. Uh, again, if you're an everyday soldier, you can't go back there. So if you needed a uniform item or anything provided by the army, you'd come in through the front door to the counter here, give the clerk your paperwork, and they would issue it to you. Uh, so you can see we have all sorts of uniform pieces. There's canteens, there's candles, blankets, um, anything like that. Uh, the quartermaster who's in charge of this building is not only in charge of all of these supplies, but he's also in charge of the civilians who work here, like the blacksmith, the army scouts, things like that. Uh, so he even has an office space back here for some clerks. Gotcha. Uh, we know uh, Buffalo Bill Cody actually is a clerk here at one point. Uh, so he works right in this room. Wow. Wow. So you, you got a, a bugle there, you got a drum, any, any fiddles? No, not, not here at the fort. Uh, so they use bugle calls and, and drums and music uh, during this time period to communicate. So today, of course, we have cell phones, we have radios, so if we needed a group to move, we could just reach out to them quickly. Uh, back then, they used music. So uh, here at the fort, they'd use bugle calls throughout the day to tell you to get up, to go to breakfast, to go to drill, uh, to go to bed, things like that. And then if you're out on the battlefield, they use sounds to tell you to move left or right or retreat, things like that. Because you can hear that pretty far. Yeah, yeah. Now, I was just wondering if there was a, a place after hours where the, the men would go to relax and maybe have some little entertainment, you know, sit around a fire or a wood stove in the wintertime. Right. So there is, uh, here at Fort Larned, the, the buildings no longer exist, but there was what we call a sutler's complex. It's basically a general store. Uh, and he could sell to both army, uh, he could sell both to soldiers, he could sell to civilians on the Santa Fe Trail. And we actually had two at one point. Ideally, a fort this size usually has one. Uh, but for some reason, we had two. And one of them actually had a one-lane bowling alley. Uh, the other one had a billiards table, so they could hang out in there. Um, that actually is an interesting story, too, because um, we here at Fort Learned had Buffalo soldiers. Right. And in 1869, late 1868, 1869, uh, there's an argument, actually, in the Sutler store between some of the Buffalo soldiers and some of the white soldiers, and there's a fight there. And uh, after the fight, the commanding officer here at the time finds out and he sentenced the Buffalo soldiers to go guard the woodpile for the night. Uh, and this is on uh, New Year's Day, actually, 1869, when they go out there. Um, and while they're out there, the stables mysteriously catch fire and burn to the ground. And uh, instead of diving deep into an investigation, the commanding officer actually decides to move the Buffalo soldiers and move them to another fort uh, instead of investigating. Um, and there's really never a solid conclusion. Captain Nolan, who's the, he, he's a white officer in charge of the Buffalo Soldiers, he actually gets blamed for it at, at points and uh, loses some of his salary and then fights to get it back and things like that. But uh, it's never formally established who really started the fire. Yeah, yeah. No, tough times throughout the ages. All right, we're, we're getting um, close to the end. Close to the end. We're going to go to Officer's Row next. Okay, that sounds great. So, Brian, we've, we've reached some of the officers' quarters. Um, a little bit more spacious than an enlisted man might experience? Absolutely. So, uh, here at Fort Learned, 
Uh, we of course have companies, uh, we have four companies, and each company has ideally three officers. Uh, they have a captain and two lieutenants. Uh, and then above them we have a major who's the commanding officer of the whole four. Uh, but your rank determine how much space you got. So we are in Captain Nolan's quarters. Uh, Captain Nolan was a white officer for the Buffalo Soldiers. And uh, because he's a captain, he gets a whole side of a house. He gets three rooms. Uh, we have the parlor area where we're standing. We have a bedroom behind us and then the kitchen beyond that. If you're a lieutenant, uh, you would just get one room. So you'd close these doors right here and this would be your whole space. That would be your living room, your, your bedroom, and your kitchen all in one. Uh, and then, uh, depending on if a higher ranking officer comes in, you could be shifted around. Hmm. So you got to move your stuff quite often. Um, everything, of course, they bring has to fit in a wagon. And if you're a captain, of course, you have more access to more wagons. Um, but they still try to save space. Uh, for example, the floor covering underneath us uh, is just a wagon canvas, actually. Um, and then there's a, a, an army blanket right beside it, too, just to have a softer floor. Uh, we're fortunate that this building uh, was uh, kept in its original footprint. So after the fort closed, it was a private ranch for 80 years, and this was used for housing for the ranch hands. Uh, and it suited their needs, so luckily the floors and some of the doorways and things like that are original. Yeah. Was uh, Captain Nolan married? He was. Uh, he was married. He actually had uh, a couple children here as well. He, his wife uh, does later pass away, um, and he gets married. His first wife was named Annie. His second wife was also named Annie. So going through the records, it's a little confusing, so I'm not sure off the top of my head which Annie was here, uh, but uh, he, he is married with some children. Okay, okay. So, so that's the, the Fort Tour in, in a nutshell, but it's, it's really a fascinating um, living history um, section of the National Park Service. And, and while we've kind of gone through it in, in a few hours, I can imagine spending a full day here and, and pouring over you know, some of the things that are here to see. Absolutely. So we have the fort set up to look basically like the soldiers left for the day. So you can come and explore. Uh, you can see exactly how the officers would have had their rooms and basically almost live the life they would have when you're here at the fort for the day. Yeah. And throughout the year you have living history uh, demonstrations, reenactments? Absolutely. So our summer holidays are our main ones, so Memorial Day, Fourth of July, and Labor Day. Uh, we also have volunteers who will come here uh, and do living history in these rooms. We have ladies who uh, stay here on officer's row, of course, all done up with the nice dresses. Uh, we have a blacksmith who works here at the fort who will work in his shop. Uh, we have lots of guys who come in and dress in wool even in the middle of the summer and reenact as soldiers. Uh, so uh, we definitely bring the fort to life. Yeah, even some Buffalo soldiers. Even some Buffalo soldiers, absolutely. Yeah. Now the Santa Fe Trail um, came right through here pretty much. Um, do you reflect that diversity of travelers along the trail in the fort at all during these reenactments? Yeah, absolutely. So sometimes we'll have specific themes for some of our events. Uh, so uh, we, we do, in our exhibits, we actually got brand new exhibits not too long ago, and we try to, to mention that it's not just European Americans out here. There's, there's Buffalo soldiers, there's Plains Indians, there's Hispanic traders um, on the Santa Fe Trail. Uh, there's different roles of women here, different jobs. Um, so we try to incorporate all of those stories here at the Ford. Sure, a lot of heritage for uh, a many different type of um, groups of visitors that can peer into the back, into the history. Exactly. Must be fascinating. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thanks so much. It's been a great tour, and uh, I look forward to coming back. Well, one question before um, we end. Um, what about the winter months? 
What about the winter? It's pretty quiet here. Uh, we are open year-round, uh, every day from 8.30 to 4.30. Uh, but we're still here. We, that's when we get a lot of our cleaning done. Because we get a lot of dust here in the summertime. So it's a, lot of, it's a good time for us to catch up and get some cleaning done. Yeah, so no reenactments for the months. We do have, we have a Christmas event uh, in, in usually early December where we'll come and um, a lot of times we'll have carriage rides and sometimes we have Santa and things like that. Um, we also, in the fall, we have one of our big events, it's what we call candlelight tour. It's at night. Uh, we light up the buildings with candles, just like they historically would have had. And you actually go through scenes. So we have different themes. Um, this year's theme is actually flower, meaning commissary and supplies. Um, so as you go from scene to scene, uh, it'll be acting out related to that topic. So I'm interested to see that this year. Yeah, it sounds exciting. Sounds exciting. So for National Parks Traveler from Fort Larned National Historic Site, this is Kurt Rappenchek. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Despite having closely covered the national park system for 17 years, I'm constantly amazed by the great and rich variety of units in the park system and can't recommend highly enough that you consider visiting some of the overlooked units during your travels. Keep an eye on the National Parks Traveler's website for a story pointing out some more of those destinations. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.